Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guests are members of Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, and they'll be sharing their story of food addiction and how FA has helped them. Uh, so, Samantha and Roseanne, uh, welcome to the show. Hi. 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 Thanks for having us. No worries. So, I'll start with you, Samantha. On the show, we usually talk about, you know, growing up and how families and school and things and friends influence us and how that sort of set you off on your path in life. So, what was life growing up in your family like? Well, my life growing up was actually pretty good. Stable upbringing in terms of my parents. They weren't addicts, but I had a propensity toward food addiction, I think, from the time I was born. I just don't remember a time in early life when I wasn't very attracted to the flour and sugar and all the various concoctions that one can make from that. My mother was an excellent cook, and so I would hang around the kitchen. I would wait for the bowls to lick. I would wait for the spatula to lick. I would, I didn't want to be in there to do any work. I just wanted to be in there to get, you know, get what I now know is my drug. Of course, I didn't know that as a young child, but I knew that it just lit up my brain the way nothing else did. And so I became very preoccupied with flour and sugar, getting it. I was born and raised in Canada. And I can remember Christmas mornings, waking up very early and racing down. And I didn't care as much about the presents as I cared about what, what kind of flour and sugar, hardcore sugar items were in that stocking. And my mother would let us open a big bag of candy um, that was wrapped under the tree. And it was like, oh, I get to start eating candy at you know five or six or seven in the morning, whatever time it was. That's what I remember. Those are my memories. So I was very preoccupied with it from an early age. So can you describe the feeling you had with that food? You said it lit up your brain, but what did it do for you? It was just such an intense pleasure sensation. I think it was probably just lighting up the pleasure centers in my brain. I would feel relief. I was a very intense child, and I think it would just, you know, to, to use an expression that one might use later on in life, it just took the edge off. Even as a little kid, it took the edge off for me. I would just feel, oh, okay, everything's fine. <laughs> Even if nothing was wrong, I would feel, oh, everything's fine. All is well with the world if I'm eating candy. So did you have any anxiety as a child? Was there any, were you scared or... I think by nature, I was just a child that really wanted to do well at everything. And to, I think there was a lot of pressure, I think, in my family to do well and to perform well and to look good. So I think somehow I got the message that keep everything looking really good on the outside, no matter how you felt on the inside. So I will say that there wasn't a lot of place to talk about one's feelings really or process what's going on for us emotionally. So I think I started to shut down emotionally at a very young age. And again, not realizing that I needed to be talking about anything, it just wasn't what was done. So there were a few traumatic incidents in my childhood. One in particular I was at age 11 where the neighborhood family, my parents were away and the father came home and shot his wife and all three children, including a baby. And those were our friends. And my parents were away celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary. And I do remember feeling at 11 years old, the weight of that. And the, I understand today that 11 year olds tend to think that everything is their fault. And so I think I somehow took that on 
And then we were sent to my parents. We were put on a train and sent to my parents. And I remember thinking, wanting to talk about what happened and they just moved on, <laughs> move on. So I think there was a general feeling, especially of that generation, that you just, if you didn't talk about things and they didn't happen. So a lot of the family, whatever the family traumas were or whatever the difficult circumstances were, you just didn't talk about it, you just moved on. And I think that my parents probably thought they were doing the best for us in that, in that way. But, uh, but I've learned now that, hey, when what I really, from that age, right around that age, I started to drink alcohol as well. And I think at that point, I, I needed something to cope with those feelings and I didn't want to feel them. And so I was looking for ways to not have to feel the feelings and there was no place to talk about the feelings. It didn't seem like there was any other outlet. So that's what I turned to. That's what I turned to for comfort. Um, but I, I wouldn't ever put that fact that I'm a food addict on that one incident or any other incident because I was already well set up for it. I think I was already very much leaning into using the, the flour and sugar. That was my very first drug of choice for, for lack of a better way to describe it. You know, it's so interesting with food that, you know, my mom was a sweet mother would be baking all these things out of love and, you know, giving them to us as, as a loving gesture, but it was very detrimental to me because I think of my genetic propensity for this disease. Yeah. So just to go back to the alcohol then. So how did you start drinking? Well, in Canada, we went to elementary school from kindergarten to grade six, and then high school from grade seven to 11. And so in grade six, I already knew some of the kids that were in the high school. So when I was in elementary school, some of my friends had already learned how to acquire the alcohol, how to create fake IDs and how to get it. And, and again, I felt that same sense of relief. So I know today that I'm, I'm like an alcoholic only with food. And I'm also an alcoholic, <laughs> so either way. Yes, that helps to explain it, doesn't it? Yes. So across to you, Roseanne, would you like to tell us a bit about growing up for you and how your family situation um, was? I'm um, the oldest of four kids. Basically, I was born the next year my brother was born, the next year my sister was born, and then three years later, my, my youngest brother was born. So I was kind of treated like the big girl. You know, I had to be the big sister and uh, my mother was busy always with a baby in her lap, it seems. So I was very close to my mother and I was a good girl, you know, I, and I was very compliant, but I also was very uh, fearful, very shy. I think that I felt like it was, you know, I, I helped out my mother the best I could by just being, uh, like I said, a good girl, being compliant, not raising a fuss, I did really well in school, but I didn't have, uh, I was very shy. I didn't have a lot of friends. Uh, we moved around a lot. So I really never had any close friendships growing up. And I don't remember, I don't know if I was a food addict from the, from the get-go, but I must have overeaten because when I was about in second or third grade, my dad put me on my first diet. You know, I was the uh, kind of a designated a problem in the family. My mother is a, was a food addict. Uh, I know that now, but nobody else in my family uh, was an addict. And she started gaining weight at the same time I did. So we kind of were like eating buddies at some times and diet buddies, you know, other times. So I, I was thinking back and I realized most of, I felt like most of my childhood and, and most of my life until I found uh, FA was either thinking about being on a diet, on a diet, or pretending like I was in a diet, because especially around my dad, I just, I had to, uh, I was really watched closely by him. I was, uh, couldn't eat the way I really wanted to eat in front of him. But yeah, my whole, a lot of my, my childhood was, was spent dieting. But I also realized that I, when I think back on it, I, I must not have been totally dieting because I also was very interested in cooking. I kind of wanted to be like the little uh, mother. So I was, I had a little, in fact, I remember back, I had a cookbook, uh, the Betty Crocker cookbook for kids. And I would pour over that and, you know, fantasize about cooking and I would, I would help my mother cook. So um, I was also very interested in, in food that way. So 
you know, is either dieting, restricting, or going overboard, I think. So how did you cope with moving between schools? It, you know, it was difficult. I just, uh, I just had to adjust. And like I said, I was a good student, so I very much focused on, on getting good grades. And, you know, in my family, that was expected. You know, you were expected to go to college, at, you know, and to be a good student. So I was very focused on doing my schoolwork. And uh, I didn't really have time for friendships or um, part of the reason I was overweight too, probably was I was not an active kid. So I, I wasn't into sports or anything like that. I was, I was pretty inactive. So. So did you have to hide food from your father? Yeah, I, I was thinking back. I, I did. I remember one time, you know, I used to uh, have dirty bowls under my bed where I had snuck food and eaten it, eaten it in, you know, my room and then didn't want to bring the bowls out so they could see what I was eating. So I would, there were like all these spoons and sticky bowls under my bed. Um, and I realized too, I was always trying to find the loophole in some of these diets. So um, I did Atkins diet when it first came out, one of my many diets. And, you know, you could eat technically endless amounts of low carb uh, food. So I would just eat huge. I, I was into the quantities. I would eat jars of, of stuff uh, that was supposedly legal. I would eat a lot of protein and, and cheese and, and just each huge quantity. So I think I was more at that time, it was more quantities either. And I also uh, worked around it by, at that time, they had what they called dietetic food. And it was actually meant for diabetics and it was not low calorie, but in, I, my dad thought it was diet food because they had more dietetic. So I would just eat tons of this dietetic candy, which was basically didn't have technically didn't have sugar in it, but I would buy huge quantities of that too. So I figured out ways to kind of get around it and look like I was dieting, but I, I really wasn't just because I just I felt like I needed, you know, I needed that, that food. Yeah. So as you grew up, how did it affect your relationships with people? Yeah, um, my relationship with my dad was just, you know, I blamed him for all my problems. You know, he put me on my first diet. He didn't, you know, I thought I wasn't accepted by him. I really, I had a lot of bad feelings towards him. I blamed him for a lot of my misery. You know, like I said, I was shy. I just, I, I rather, I would rather be home eating rather than, than have relationships with people. I, I had a relationship with food and not with people. So, yeah, <laughs> right. Um, so what about you, Samantha? Did your food get in the way of relationships with people? Definitely. I would much rather be eating a pint of ice cream than interacting with anybody. I would much rather, I would isolate with food. I would sneak food. I would, later on, I would get jobs in restaurant or you know, restaurant places or food places. I'd bring home the leftovers. I would hide the binging, especially into my teenage years. So it definitely impacted. And, and, and actually, honestly, I became quite depressed as a teenager. And I'm pretty sure looking back on it, it was the effects of the flour and sugar on my brain. But I got so depressed that I couldn't get out of bed one time. And so my father took me to a psychiatrist. And I, looking back on it, I went one week and then the following week when I went to see the, the psychiatrist, I said, I've gained 10 pounds in a week. So I know now I was like pleading for help. I was essentially telling him I'm a food addict, except that nobody knew, I don't think what food addict was back then. So all the solutions I was given weren't treating the, the, the fundamental issue, but absolutely it made me feel depressed. It made me feel just as I was you know, developing into a young woman, it was robbing me of my self-esteem because I knew I was sneaking and eating and lying about what I was eating and feeling bad about myself, which is obviously not a good way to come into adulthood, <laughs> you know, so it definitely impacted relationships. Yeah, it's, it's very much a second life, isn't it? So, and it has that issue that you've got to deal with telling people different versions of the truth to get by. So did it impact your ability when you started work? Was it an issue for you as you entered the adult world? I'm sure that it impacted the way I was as a, as a person, as a working person. I have to say though, what I 
my drive to succeed and compete and do well was very, very strong because, and I think that that's because I felt so poorly about myself on the inside. I was trying so hard to make everything look good on the outside. So similar to what was mentioned earlier, I got very good grades. I kept trying to make everything look good on the outside, whether it was in school or in a job, but behind the scenes, I was crazy and miserable. So I, I kept a pretty good facade for many, many years until the later years when the disease really started to take me down. Yeah. Did your friends at work know that you were eating? No, I hid it. And I, and I had such a strong desire to control. For me, the, the disease was really a battle of control. I did a lot of things. I over-exercised. I was known to go... I'll just take a run and it would be an eight hour run. You know, I'd run all day long and I'll back, you know, anything to the excess. So anything to control what I was eating. And I was terrified to gain weight. I was terrified to gain weight. So I, a lot of my story was about not so much getting huge numbers on the scale, although I did get to be 40 or 50 pounds overweight, which on a five foot two frame is a lot. That was with all my best efforts at control dieting and trying my best to limit my food. I once went 30 days without eating at all. Just drank water for 30 days. Wow. Just trying to control that and to get down to the weight, this healthy weight, which I am today, which I'm maintaining today with good, healthy, nutritious food. But in those days, I had no other way to do it. And of course, I should mention that as soon as that three days was over, I picked up flour and sugar item and just went to town and ate a whole bag so it was right back to where i started yeah okay well listen we might take a short break there don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid tune into the dogs program we are the defenders of government schools 12 p.m on saturdays here on 3cr 855 and am dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3cr digital we defend government schools because they need it. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Samantha and Roseanne and we're talking about recovery from the food addiction with the help of Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous. So Roseanne, we're just talking about work and going to work and the impact of your eating on your working life. So how did that occur for you? Did, did food become an issue in your work? It did because I, I didn't, I was kind of a late bloomer as far as going to school and uh, actually getting a job um, in my career. But um, when I went away to college, that's when my disease really took off. I was, uh, I went away to school and I probably wasn't, I seemed very mature because I was a, like um, a good girl, like I said, but um, going away to school was probably the worst thing for me. Um, uh, that's when I didn't have the my dad's uh, watching me what was going on and I just uh, it's like everything just went downhill from there um, I was taking food from roommates so I was eating huge quantities of food I would and basically I stopped going to class here I was you know that my claim to fame so to speak the thing that really I did best at school I just I just uh kind of gave up and uh, I was very much absorbed by the food and I would stop going to class. Like I said, I would slept half the day um, and basically I flunked out of school. So I came home full of shame. I finally picked up and, and you know, got some, I finally realized I was clinically depressed and I'm, I attribute it now. I look back and I'm sure it was, it was caused by my food addiction, but I didn't know that at the time. But anyway, um, so I did end up going back to school. I worked part-time, went to school part-time, and then finally did get a, a job, a, a profession. But I get, you know, I just ate, my weight was up and down, up and down. And when I was, I, I was pharmacist and I gained a hundred pounds in pharmacy school. So when I did go to work, uh, I'm five foot one and I was over 300 pounds. My weight, like I said, was just up and down. So 
while I didn't eat the way I really wanted to eat in front of coworkers, you know, they had to know something was wrong because I could just, you know, one time they people would see me and I, I was so ashamed because I'm like, every time I would not see somebody for a while and see them, I was like, gee, was I a normal weight? Was I, you know, in the 200 pound range or, you know, and I, yeah, they just never knew how big I was going to be. So did that affect your working relationships with people? I think it did. Again, I, I just didn't want to be close to people. I would rather have eaten. I wasn't really social uh, at my job. But I, I, I managed to, you know, I was pretty functional. I mean, that's the thing. It's kind of surprising. Hell, I had a, a profession. I owned a home. I looked on the outside. I looked like I had it pulled together. But on the inside, I, I just really was dying. So I could kind of fake it pretty good on the outside, though. Um, yeah, so my relationships were okay. But I also was very insecure about my job. You know, I just I just felt insecure in general. So I didn't strive to uh, progress like I could have within my career. I kind of I played it safe because I just didn't feel like I deserved, you know, anything good in my life. So, yeah. So what was a day in the life like for you as far as a, an obsessive eater? What was your day like? Oh my gosh, towards the end, it was just horrible. I would wake up in the morning and swear that this was going to be different today, often, or sometimes I'd wake up in the morning and towards the end of my disease. And the first thing I did is, is I didn't put on clean clothes. I just, you know, got up in enough time to just barely get to work. And my priority was to go to the grocery store and get my stuff, you know, and I would just buy bags and boxes of flour and sugar items to take to work and eat them on the way to work and I would have them in my car so on breaks I would go out and get stuff from the car I'd go to vending machines and hide stuff you know in my sleeves and my pockets and and then we had in our break room I would be eating the snacks in the break room and back and forth and I wasn't supposed to be eating at my desk so I'd be you know sneaking stuff into my uh where my workplace and eating there yeah, my, my priority was the food you know, at work. I just, it was hard to con. I would even leave my job. I mean, I, I did some really shameful things. I would leave in the middle of the day. I had a pager, but I would leave my job and, and to go get to the grocery store and get food, you know, and then come back. You know, I, I just be, I do risky things around my job. And in fact, at one point, I, you know, I, this is where the disease really took me. I just, my, all my ethics or my, my, um, the way I was raised, I wasn't raised to, to, you know, I was raised with, uh, you know, really strong ethics, but I stole, I was, like I said, I worked in a pharmacy. I stole pills because I was so depressed. Um, I took pills and I was planning on killing myself and I could have lost my job. I could have lost my license. I could have lost my life, but that's really, you know, where the disease took me. But anyway, back to your question. So I'd be eating all day. I'd come home, I'd be stuffed. And then I'd force myself to eat a dinner and then eat after dinner. You know, I just, I just had to be eating something in my mouth constantly. And then I got diagnosed eventually with binge eating disorder. So I'd be grazing all day, but then something would happen. I would just eat huge quantities of food. I mean, you know, like, I don't know if you guys have Costco there, but I could eat, I would had Costco sized quantities of, of sweet items, you know, and I could just, you know, eat that. And here, I remember one time I was literally one morning I was on my bed eating a, a, a case of something crying because I couldn't stop you know and I really wanted to and, and it had reached that point where I was so sick of the sugar I just felt like there was like a fur on my tongue it was just like horrible but I couldn't stop and it was just it was crazy so I just yeah it just really really took me down so yeah okay thanks back to you then Samantha talking about work and relationships and things like that so how did your eating affect your daily life it was just a constant struggle to stay afloat at, at work and a constant struggle because i would drive to work in the morning i would stop at a shop where i could get really full-on desserts like layer cakes with icing and all this and be eating all of that on the way to work and then I remember, I can clearly remember eating all that stuff in the car, driving there, and then walking into my office where people could see me with the proper little size coffee cup and the one little muffin 
putting on my desk like all the normal people do when they go to work. But of course, nobody knew that that was like the 50th, you know, hardcore sugar item I consumed just to get to work. So it was so hard to, to concentrate and stay focused because as soon as that, I finished whatever I had, I was on the hunt for other things. I've done the exact same thing as, as was just mentioned. I've left my workplace once because I got obsessed. Even though I could get many flour and sugar items in the cafeteria there, I was obsessed with something in my town at a particular grocery store, a particular kind of candy that was in the bin. And I left work, I drove away from work, drove 30 minutes to that store, got a bag of it and drove back, not letting anybody know that I was leaving work or where I was going. Towards the end, I remember uh, was working as a consultant and I had, this is the dichotomy of the disease, I guess. I had one what's called President's Club, which means you're one of the top producers. And so we were going to a very beautiful resort as sort of a reward for that production. And I had my husband with me and I was sneaking out of the room. You know, this was, I'd sold him on this whole deal because I was a workaholic as well. So it affected me that way also, this overdoing of everything. So I told him, hey, this is like a second honeymoon. Well, second honeymoon, I'm sneaking out of the bedroom in the morning at six o'clock in the morning, going to the breakfast bar, getting two big boxes of food, going out on the beach and just stuffing my face with these boxes and scared that the CEO of the company is going to be having a walk with his wife on the beach or something and see his little star player, you know, stuff in her face. And I was eating so fast that I got a tortilla chip lodged in my throat and I could not breathe for a while. I thought, I am going to die on this beach choking on a tortilla chip. I mean, what a way to go. But fortunately, at the last minute, it, it got dislodged. And then I go crawling back to my husband, sick as a dog, you know, from just, you know, doing this to myself. So I was eventually going to lose my job through eating, but it, it's, it's, a, it's slower than, than alcohol or other drugs, I would say, but I was, I was engaging in those kinds of behaviors. So sooner or later, it was gonna catch up with me. Yeah, so what did your husband think? Did you, you obviously were doing the same behaviors with him, but was he aware of any of your eating? He was aware by that time because this was, he knew that I wasn't supposed to be eating flour and sugar at that time. And he knew that I was trying to seek help. And fortunately he was loyal and patient, but you know, he clearly suffered uh, as a result of my behavior. There were times when it would be 11 o'clock at night and he'd be calling, worried about me, worried about his wife, where are you? And I would literally have to say, I'm parked outside a grocery store just eating. And so I would get home and he would have that look that probably every addict knows, that look of, you know, you're pathetic is what it would seem like, but I can't blame him. I was pathetic. I was incomprehensibly demoralized, as they say, and I couldn't stop as much as I wanted to. I just could not stop. So it obviously affected your relationship with him because it's hard to have this double life, as you said, this dichotomy of having things that you reveal to some people and not to others, if you like. So did it mean that you could have a normal relationship or was that impossible? I think a normal relationship was impossible when any party is engaged, you know, in, in the relationship is, is, it's got the desire to seek out their drug. And for me, this, this flour and sugar and, excess quantities of food is a drug. So when, 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 when I'm so focused on that, as opposed to him, I, I can tell you this, that after I was able to get abstinent from this behavior and into a solid base of recovery, and we went out to dinner one night, he said, you know, this is so different. You're actually here with me. <laughs> you're, you're interacting with me. I think in the past, when we went out to a restaurant, I, was, I could have cared less that he was there. I was heads down in the food thing really I mean he was just a reason for me to get to a restaurant to get what I wanted to eat as opposed to somebody you know that I wanted to spend time with and be with and was capable of being there you know emotionally yeah it's very typical of um, in my understanding of um, addicts and alcoholics that the family is just between them and what they want they're they're in the way and they just need to be got out of the way and everything will be okay 
So uh, back to you, Roseanne. Did you did you find that preferring to be on your own? Did it mean that people tried to get close to you and you pushed them away? Or did you allow people to get into your space? I allowed people to get into my space to a certain degree, but um, I know that my behavior was that I would leave people before they would leave me. So I think I was very hypervigilant and um, I didn't go really deep with people. I didn't engage, you know, in a, in a deep, meaningful way. I was very lonely, yet I just you know, I, I turned to, to the food rather than to the people. I didn't want to take the risk. So my relationships were good with people. I didn't have bad relationships. They were just pretty, weren't um, satisfying, weren't really meaningful, weren't, uh, you know, I just wanted to run away. I just kind of wanted to avoid. Well, yeah, I basically uh, avoided a lot of any sort of meaningful, deep relationships, but I was lonely. I wanted, you know, I wanted them, I, I, but uh, I just didn't like I said, I, my food was everything I turned to for in, in lieu of the relationship to meet those, what I, those needs. So what caused you to look for help? Oh, my gosh. You know, I, I, I've been in, ther- in and out of therapy since, like I said, I just crashed and burned when I went away to, to college and got some therapy and, and got, eventually got um, antidepressants and I, you know, I tried all kinds of, like I said, I tried diets. I, you know, I thought that was going to fix me. I thought if I just took, you know, if I just was a normal weight, then everything would be wonderful. I didn't have a concept at the time that my problem was my, I mean, I was a food addict, not that I, you know, I thought my problem that I was fat, you know, and once I got my weight off then everything, life would be great. I would intuitively know how to have these relationships. I would be social. I would, you know, not be so shy. I would go out and do these things. And once my gut, you know, when, so I got my weight off. I didn't know how to do any of that. And I was scared to death. And it was just, you know, I didn't have the tools to cope with life. And the only thing I knew to cope with, how to cope was, was through the food. So I get back into the food. But um, so I've been in, in an, I had been in individual therapy, group therapy, individual therapy with an eating disorder specialist, group therapy for eating disorders. I've been to nutritionists and natural Nat tried and the natural supplement route, you know, and uh, I did wasn't another another twelve step program, but for some reason I just didn't get it, and it's and I didn't I didn't just work the program the way I work it now in FA, and I left with some bad feelings, and you know I was just scared. I felt like I had reached my my limit, and I just said to myself, I said, "There's nothing left." Like I said, I tried every avenue I could think of, you know, I didn't. I, it, it wasn't that I didn't care and, and there was for lack of trying, but just nothing did what FA has done. You know, I realize now it's a threefold disease and it needs, needs a threefold solution. And, and, and you know, I would try the, the, the therapy. So that was the mental part, or I would try the diet. That was a physical part. I didn't go too deep into the spiritual part, but I, though I did have a belief in a, I did have a faith, you know, a certain faith that I followed on and off, but I just, I had a very skewed view of, of of my higher God, you know, at that time. And I expected God just to come down and, and strike me, you know, cure me or something. And it just didn't work that way. You know, I didn't realize I had to really change, change a lot of behaviors, but anyway. And so I was scared to death because the last thing I went back to things just weren't working. And I thought, there's nothing left. I'm going to have to do bariatric surgery because I started gaining weight again after my last diet. I knew it was a matter of time before I was over 300 pounds again. And I thought, I'm just going to have to have some sort of bariatric surgery. And I, but somehow God was touched me in my heart, my mind, my soul, some in a way that I realized bariatric surgery is not going to fix me. He can, they, you can't cut out what I realized was the disease now. And mm-hmm. I thought I'm going to, if I do this bariatric surgery, I'm going to, could risk my life. I'd spend all this money. And yet I'd still have that drive to eat. It wouldn't cure that, you know? And so um, I said to myself, well, there's nothing left. And uh, that's when I really decided to go back to, I was going to go back to the other 12-step program and then couldn't find it in my area and ended up finding, going online. And I found what I didn't know even existed, Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous. And that's when I said, well, I just need more help than I was getting. Because I was in a group for, um, outpatient group for people with eating disorders, but they, we were not supposed to interact with people outside of the group, which meant once met once a week. I knew I needed more help. I knew I need something. So, like I said, that just 
that's where I think definitely God was working in my life in a way that, that uh, and I was open to hearing that or, or accepting, I don't know, there's some, something very spiritual that happened. And I think it was a real, just a gift from God for that. Something for me to be so broken yet so open to what God was trying to present me with that I realize now. Yeah, it's a change of attitude, isn't it? Yes. Okay, well, so we might take another short break there. Published or Not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by... David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR. Published or Not, every Thursday, 11.30 till noon. When you get home, baby, write me a few your lines. This is Living Free on 3CR Digital and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. Today I'm talking with Samantha and Roseanne and we're talking about recovery from food obsession with the help of Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous. So Samantha, you talked about just before the break about going out to dinner with your husband after you got into FA and how enjoyable it was for him to, to dine with you. But what was the trigger that got you into to look for help for your eating? Well, I originally got into Alcoholics Anonymous, but as soon as I got sober, put the alcohol down, the food came back with a vengeance. As I mentioned earlier, that was really my first drug of choice. So as I was learning more and more about recovery in 12 steps and what addiction was, it became more and more apparent to me that I was using food as a drug. I was an alcoholic with food. And so I saw others getting happier and more peaceful, more contented in their lives. And I was sober in the sense of wasn't drinking alcohol, but I was using food in the exact same way. And I knew, and I was just getting more and more miserable and more and more just full of despair, and more unhappy. My life really wasn't getting any better. So that's when I went to my sponsor and talked honestly about what I was doing with food. And she suggested that I get into a, a program for you know recovery from addiction to food so I found my way into to food addicts and recovery anonymous when I got here I saw that this was a solution that I could see was working and I saw some familiar literature I knew that they talked about food being a drug so that was familiar to me I'd like to say that I surrendered on that first day knowing all that but I didn't I fought it for seven years while I stayed in food addicts and recovery anonymous and that's because I wasn't fully surrendered. So it took me a while, but I guess it's now 14 years ago, I finally was beaten into the corner by the food. I had just relapsed so many times and gone back. And I was so discouraged and demoralized and sick that I just knew that was the only way out, really. And I just knew I was going to die if I just kept up with the same behavior. Yeah. So do you want to talk a bit about not surrendering? in a fellowship or in a, in a recovery program of going, but not, I guess, not accepting everything, accepting bits of it. I don't know why I couldn't just give it up when I first got in. I just had too much self-will and too much fight in me. I mean, it's, I now understand it, that it's a threefold disease. It's a physical allergy, but it's a mental allergy also. And there's a, a spiritual bankruptcy that goes along with it. So what happened for me is instead of learning how to be more humble, gaining humility, I actually, I think it bumped up my ego a little because the physical part worked and I got thin. So I thought, whoo-hoo, that's what I've been trying to do my whole life, get thin. And we have an expression in, in our program that says thin is not well. And I was a prime example of that. I wasn't getting better mentally or spiritually. I wasn't building enough of a spiritual foundation that was lasting and that could really replace the cravings and the desire for the food. So that's what happened to me. So also, I was I mentioned earlier, I was a work addict also. I was a workaholic. So I didn't want to give up my job, but my job was very demanding. I was traveling around the world. I was fatigued. I was looking to flour and sugar as fuel to keep up that facade. So having been in AA and having that solve your alcohol problem, 
was it sort of strange to you that you couldn't do it with food as well? That, that food was a much stronger presence? Yes. For me, giving up alcohol, well, it's, it's, I need to be careful, I think, how I say this because I, I want to say it was easier, but, but only because I had another drug move right in. So they talk about uh, switching seats on the Titanic. But food is so ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's, it's, you have to eat three times a day. You have to prepare your meals. You have to shop. You have to have your hands in it. You have to be smelling it. With the alcohol, you can put it away. You can take it out of your home. You can hopefully stay away from the bars and the, the parties. But where there's a lot of alcohol, you can remove yourself to a great extent from it. You're not trying to ingest it three times a day. Whereas with food, you're interacting with your drugs at least three times a day. And that is much more challenging. And for me, required a much more structured, more intense, I guess, recovery program. Yeah. So what was it that brought you to the point of having to surrender in real terms? What was the thing that broke you? Just feeling so beaten, just feeling so beaten by the food and waking up every day and wanting to be abstinent and not being able to day after day after day and seeing the look in my husband's face, seeing myself, um, just I just couldn't take it anymore. And I knew that I would probably pick up another, probably go back to alcohol or some other drug. I just couldn't stay that miserable and, and not do something more extreme. And I knew I would die. I knew that if I picked up alcohol and drugs and did it with the same intensity and vengeance that I was binging with food, that I would definitely be dead in a very short time. So it really did become a matter of life and death for me. Some people find that hard to believe that a food addiction could be a matter of life and death. But for me, it really was, is, <laughs> not was, is. <laughs> Just, one day at a time, thank you, God, I'm free of it for today. Yeah, thank you. Over to you, Roseanne. What was your experience coming into food addicts? You know, you've been obviously been in another program before, so you had some idea of the, I guess, the disease concept, the, you know, the threefold nature. So how was food addicts different for you? And how did you approach the program? Well, when I first came in, I was basically my thought was I wasn't gonna stay. You know, I had done one another, you know, a diet, I did Atkins again. And uh, lost, got my weight down, and then started getting back into the, the, the flour and sugar. And so my plan was, you know, use it as just a, a temporary measure to go back to Atkins because I like the idea of, of eating as much as you want of certain things. I, so there's a, a, a motto or a saying, and in, in, I came from the other pro, from the other program I've been in, where they said take what you like and leave the rest. So I came in with that attitude. And it was just, like I said, it was just going to be temporary, but my higher power, God had different ideas. And I started hearing things that I didn't hear before when I was in the other program I was definitely more open. And I heard people start to talk about rigorous honesty. And, you know, my, I wasn't being rigorously honest in my first couple months. So when I was with my sponsor, when I was doing FA, um, I was yeah, not telling her what I was doing around the food. I was fantasizing about my next binge. I wasn't doing the practices that we do to uh, help keep us abstinent, you know, um, and I, that I was had made commitment that I was going to do. And so I kept hearing rigorous honesty. And I finally came clean with my, my first sponsor. And I went out and did my worst eating two months into the program. And the food stopped working for me that the fantasy, the highlight what was the fantasy of what the hit, so to speak, I was going to get off it. And the, the first bite, it was just, it was so demoralizing because it just didn't do it anymore. So, you know, like I said, it, the food stopped working for me and I gained 17 pounds in three weeks by eating like I had never, like I, I, I call my, describe it as like, I was just like an eating machine. I was like an animal around food. I basically was eating sugar out of the box because I just, I just had to have something constantly. And, um, and I, I realized that I would be over 300 pounds in so fast and there was no stopping me. I had no off button. You know, I could get four or five, 600 pounds um, I easily. So I came in with a, I felt that was my, my point where I, I came in and just 
basically surrendered um, and got a, a, a new sponsor and with a new willingness that I did not have before. I've been abstinent ever since. So, um, but uh, this program, I really feel it saved my life because I would either have been eaten myself to death, literally, or I would have uh, killed myself because like I said, I have a history of major depression and a history of, of suicidal thoughts to the point where like I, I got to the point, like I said, where I collected pills. You know, I never attempted, but I was getting, it was close, so. So how has it changed your life? Oh my gosh. Well, I, I just feel so grateful and it's not everybody's story, but I have been able to, I've been, had a, most of my adult life, I was on antidepressants. I can name five or six different ones I was on throughout the years. They work for a while and I, I think they work and then they quote, stop working. And then I try another one. So I was able to taper off my antidepressants and I have not been on medications for, um, I've been in program a little over 14 years and it's about 13 and a half years. I've been free of antidepressants and I basically use my program as my antidepressant. You know, I use this described as the, the tools. I use my higher power and I, I lean into my program when things, cause you know, I, I think I am prone to depression. I, I'm, I'm not like cured so to speak, but I, I have, I will dip, but that's when I just lean into my program more and rely on my, my fellows and my, phone calls and connections with people. It's kind of ironic you're asking me about connections with people because that's really a very instrumental in this program is having deep, rich relationships with people that I never, I was like, I was always ready to cut and run. You know, if something happened and it didn't work out or there was a, a misunderstanding, I was out of there. And I've learned through this program to stay the course. You know, you work through difficult relationships or just, you know, relation. Like my one of my, my previous sponsors said, relationships are messy. I didn't get it. You know, I thought you have a, a conflict and that's it. It's over. No, no going back, no fixing anything. So I've learned to, you know, stay the course around relationships and go back and talk through things. And honesty has just been really instrumental throughout my, my program. And I'm still, you know, there's different levels of, of honesty I'm finding about, out about, about myself. You know, I'm, I'm someone who was cash register honest, but um, I wasn't, I call it full disclosure. I wasn't telling like, all the nitty gritty of what was going on with me. You know, I would just, I wanted to look good. So I would just not get to levels of honesty that I find really necessary for me to, to really, to get well, or, you know, I'll, I'll never be cured of this disease, but, you know, a day at a time I can uh, have more recovery and it's honesty has been really important for me. Um, and my relationship with my dad, I, you know, I, I knew something a year into program, my heart changed and I was able to repair that relationship. And when he died, you know, I was able to, I, I just had a different, I think God just, you know, changed my glasses, so to speak. And I was able to see that he did the best he could. And uh, I was able to tell him I love him and repair that relationship. And I was just ready. You know, I just, I hated him for so long. Like I said, I blamed him for everything. Uh, I just said, oh, if he dies, I don't care. I would never show up and be there for him. And I was there at the end, you know, when he passed. So it's really repaired that relationship. Yeah, like I said, I think this program really has saved my life. Literally and figuratively, it saved my life. Um, you know, I feel like the disease of food addiction, it's life-taking. And uh, this program is, is uh, recovery through FA has been really life-giving for me. So it's really changed my life in many ways. Thank you. So, Samantha, what about you? So how different is life today and, and particularly your relationships uh, as well? It's dramatically different from that person that was you know, hanging out at the grocery store at 11 o'clock at night, couldn't get home without eating. Uh, I'm reliable. I'm dependable. I'm meeting my obligations. I'm in a very sweet and good time with my husband. We've been together 30 something years and it's just getting better and better. And it's primarily because I'm working this spiritual program and dealing with my emotions appropriately and learning how to deal with my anger appropriately rather than just shoot off at the mouth to take some time and calm down. If I get agitated and talk to my sponsor or talk to my fellows in this program and sort things out. I blamed my mom for all my problems. It, and then when I got abstinent in this program after many years, it didn't happen overnight, 
but year after year of working the 12 steps in Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, I became aware that I was the problem, not her. And that as I changed, it's kind of embarrassing, you know, to spend your whole life blaming your mother. And I realized how immature that was. I realized what a remarkable woman she was and that how so much of the problem between the two of us was me. So when she got to be 98, my husband and I brought her into our home and she lived with us from 98 to 102 years old. So I was very grateful to be absent through those five years and to have all that time to look after her, to take care of her, to be with her. So it was a great story of reconciliation. I owe it all to being in FA. So there's that. I lost my childbearing years due to the addictions to alcohol and food. And, but it always been a, a longing of my heart to have a child. And once I got abstinent and so and much more clear-minded, I first had to deal with the grief of realizing that I had lost that. But then through the help of my sponsor and others, they encouraged me to continue to take steps and look into how I might have a child. And it's a long story, but I now have a five-year-old and a daughter. And I'm, I feel that because of this program, I'm present to her. We're able to deal with our emotions effectively. It's been the greatest joy. So the freedom from the obsession the freedom, I can't say enough too for just the physical recovery. I love being in a right size body, a healthy body, a healthy weight. I love putting my jeans in the dryer and I take them out. I'm always a little like, are they still going to fit? And they do, you know, year after year, my clothes actually wear out. So that, that was never the case before. I don't have to agonize over what I'm going to wear to cover my hips or to cover my arms or to cover something on my body. So it's a wonderful freedom for me that I never had until I got into this recovery. Thank you. If anybody would like to find out more about Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, uh, you can find them in Australia on 1-800-717-446 or you can go online at foodaddicts.org for, for local meeting and contact information. So that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Samantha and Roseanne for sharing their Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous experience with us. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yes, thanks for having us. Uh, I hope you're about to join us again next week when we'll feature Alan on family groups and talk with Rita about how alcoholism affects the family and friends of the alcoholic. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.